Hey guys, this is Sean Fennessy, the editor-in-chief of The Ringer, and I want to tell you about a podcast I host called The Big Picture. Each week, I welcome a different filmmaker to talk about their latest movie and how it was made. I've talked to the directors of some of my favorite movies, including Jordan Peele, Greta Gerwig, Ryan Johnson, Barry Jenkins, and dozens more. You can find new episodes on the Channel 33 feed every Friday by going to theringer.com backslash podcasts or by subscribing to Channel 33 wherever you get your podcasts. I hope you'll check it out. David, we're going to talk about the NBA scoops face-off between Adrian Wojnarowski and Sham Sharania. But I wanted to ask you, if you had a journalistic feud, who would it be with? Wow, that's tough, man. I mean, everybody listening to this knows that I write about professional wrestling, podcasts about professional wrestling. Now listen, I it would be easy for me to pick... Easy if a little bit presumptuous for me to pick, you know, one of the luminaries of the wrestling journalistic world like Dave Meltzer as my online foe. If I were going to stick to wrestling, I I think it would be more fun to make a bit out of going after some semi-retired older wrestler and just have, you know, work an online rivalry with with him. Um, I I briefly had interactions with such greats as uh, Jake the Snake Roberts and Disco Inferno. Disco, <laughs> disco comes hard. Wow! I think the you know one lesson that, that wrestling can can teach us about uh the you know modern world of Twitter rivalries is that it's all a work, man. What about you? Who is your rivalry with? What are you expecting me to say, Kevin Draper or Richard Deitch? I hope you do. You know, I you see, I'm not sure sports media is set up for the Pauline Kale versus Andrew Saris kind of feud. Yeah. You know, I think first, I think the problem is we probably agree on most of the major stuff. You know, it's not maybe it'd be like a lively podcast more than a more than a journalistic feud. But no, I think it's um, I think it's a responsibility of every red blooded American to have a feud with Clay Travis. <laughs> and, you know, for a while he was seemed like he was trying to start one with me. And I I feel like I kind of let everybody down because I didn't hold up my end of the bargain. You know, I was too busy writing think pieces, um, you know, like he was he was kind of asking for an apology from me on Twitter and and all kinds of things. So, um yeah, I mean, that's really, I guess that's one of my goals for 2018. To really start a good rivalry? Yeah, and we're going to we're gonna start some, David, on this edition of the Press Box. Yes. Which is part of the Ringer Podcast Network. The Press Box is the media podcast where you're not allowed to complain about how cold it is while you're covering the Winter Olympics. <laughs> we are Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker of the Ringer. If you want some recent content from us, David just recorded the 100th episode of The Masked Man Show, and I just wrote a big think piece about podcasting and soft diplomacy. But David, let me give you the table of contents for today's show, the TOC, if you will. First, the great Tom Brady catfish hoax of 2018 and how it explains the Boston sports media. Second, we'll talk about the Marvel Universe's most dangerous villain yet, the mostly unknown foreign movie critics who ruined the perfect Rotten Tomato score of Black Panther. (laughs) And finally, we'll talk about Woj versus Shams, the Anakin versus Obi-Wan lightsaber battle of NBA insiders. Plus, as always, our overworked Twitter joke of the week, the Cavs traded everybody edition this week. <laughs> Man, that was some that was some Twitter content. But first, David, a segment we'll call It's Just Like Spotlight, except the scoop turned out to be phony and they're not going to make a movie about it. It began last week when a prankster named Nick in Boston saw the cell phone number of Boston Herald columnist Ron Borges on Twitter. Nick had an idea. He would text Borges and impersonate Don Yee, the agent for Tom Brady and Jimmy Garoppolo. Nick then dangled in front of Borges a huge scoop, the news that Brady would skip OTAs unless he got a Garoppolo-sized contract from the Patriots. Borges ran with the phony scoop, which landed on the back page of the Herald, and Boston sports radio guys Kirk Minahan and Jerry Callahan exposed the scam on radio when they interviewed Nick in Boston. And the person who made it up, pretending to be Don Yee, is joining us right now. Nick in Boston. Nick, good morning. How are you? Hey, Kirk. How you doing? Good. Nice to talk to you. Explain to me how this uh, all happened. Um, somebody tweeted Braun Borges' phone number, and I just picked it up, and for some reason I just thought, hey, you know what, I'll text him and say I'm Don Yee. <laughs> and he, he just went with it for some reason. And Borges bought it hook, line, and sinker. He tried to call me three times, but I just didn't answer. Right. So th- then I was just like, whatever, screw it. I'll just call him, and he's going to know it's not Don Yee. And I called him and said, hey, Ronnie, it's Don. And we just, oh, God, like, you talked to him as Don Yee? 
Yes. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, oh my God. I, I said, I said, I literally have three seconds on. But run with the story if you want or not. It's up to you. And this was, was yesterday? This was just last night, yeah. And you ran it? Yeah, I guess so. I just picked up the paper. I'm just laughing my ass off. Now, since then, Borges has been suspended. David, what did you make of sports writing's great catfishing scandal? I'm glad you used the word catfishing because I was worried that we were going to have to spend the first 10 minutes of this segment explaining to all of our millennial listeners what radio caller pranks are. <laughs> but the, <laughs> the, this was one of the most amazing stories. You know, we've all, you and I, I mean, honestly, people who, who grew up listening to, you know, Howard Stern and sports radio in the 90s are familiar with these sorts of hijinks. It's been a while since we've heard something, uh, heard about something like this happening, especially on this level, right? I mean, you can't really get a more electric audience for this than Boston, than, you know, the Boston sports crowd and a more, you know, and, and to hit right after the Super Bowl, um, uh, it, with with you know Patriots fans sort of at a very emotional raw point, it 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 couldn't have happened at a more, um, uh, like I said, a more sensitive time. Um, I don't know. I mean the first the, the the first thing that occurred to me was that if if I got a text message from an unknown number claiming to be someone uh, with a scoop, I, I would like to think I'd be skeptical enough to double check it, but. Uh, you know, in the modern era, like I changed my phone number is a really, is a really, is a really reasonable excuse. I mean, he didn't have to use that excuse obviously, but, um, you know, I, I just, it it was just such a terrible cluster and I, I don't, it's, it's just so funny. I just, I just can't get enough of it. Well, there's a little bit of a twist too, right? Because it'd be a, a text from an unknown number of somebody you had talked to before, right? Because it seemed like Yee and Borges had some kind of relationship, right? This wasn't like the a total out of the blue text. Yeah. When he referred to him as old friend in text message, that seemed to just be trying to like <laughs> <laughs> like give like give up the joke, you know. But it it was hard to tell what kind of relationship they had just based on the text messaging. Yeah, I mean, it's a couple of interesting things to me. One is the Schadenfreude that just poured out. <laughs> from not only Boston, but kind of national sports Twitter, Michael David Smith over on uh, Pro Football Talk, who noted that Borges had been, he said, using material from his writing without proper credit for years. Borges also was suspended and then from and then left the Boston Globe back in 2007 after he committed plagiarism. Marty Baron was the editor, by the way, back then, speaking of Spotlight. Wow. Um, it's in, of course, in the binary world of Boston media, right? You were either pro-Pats or anti-Pats in the eyes of people. And Borges is definitely would definitely be on the latter second side of that. So, you know, then you get people not only like the WEI guys, but, you know, Dave Portnoy and everybody grave dancing on him after this whole thing is revealed. That was That was kind of amazing. The other thing that was crazy to me is, our, our pal uh, Kevin Clark said this had the air of a, a James O'Keefe sting coming to sports writing. And Ben Volan, who writes about the Patriots for the Boston Globe, said that someone tried to plant a fake story with him during Super Bowl week, he thought. Uh-huh. And, and so maybe this is like, I mean, that when when we heard from Nick in Boston, it sounded like it was just like a, a one-time gag. He said he had no agenda other than, you know, he saw the guy's number on Twitter and thought it would be funny. But the idea that there is someone or some people running around trying to plant stories, fake stories with sports writers is, is pretty incredible. Well, you mentioned Twitter. I mean, there's no shortage of people who like, you know, will get, will, will squat on the, uh, you know, a Twitter account with an L turned into a one that looks a whole lot like a famous sports writer and try to disseminate fake news. Right. I mean, that's, it's just the thrill of the thrill of fleeting attention or significance, you know, just getting a joke over on, just getting a prank over on, the world is is an ends in and of itself, and and that's fine because it is. I mean, it's hilarious. I don't I don't I don't, I don't fault the pranksters at all. Um, that said, there's no better target than and I and I'm not a longtime reader of Ron Borges. I don't I wouldn't claim that I were that I was, but there's there's no better target than the sort of old guard sports columnist, lo, you know, a big city but local sports columnist who just you know, get by on their, uh, for lack of a better word, high and mightiness, you know, week after week. Um, and yes, and I, yes. I mean, it's, it's just it, it, like, you know, if, if this were, 
if this were a just a beat reporter who got fooled, there it would just be a brief apology. You know, it'd probably be a tw- a, a, an apologetic tweet. I got this wrong. Sorry, I, I won't make the mistake again. Um, you know, when you come at it, when, when it's when it's presented by somebody, I mean, for one thing, when it's the 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 full color, you know, uh, sports page of the of the newspaper, um, and it's presented as a big scoop. That's obviously a different story, but also just the I think it's just the demeanor um, and the platform that really made the difference. I also think that you know, in in at this moment uh, in in Boston, I think that there's a lot of people looking for a villain, you know, and it's hard and. After the after the Patriots loss, you know, it, there's a lot of hand wringing about what Belichick could have done differently. But nobody wants to hate Bill Belichick, you know. I mean, and, and there's a lot mm-hmm. of nobody nobody wants to get on Tom Brady's case. Um, the the normal and 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 certainly, you know, it, it's hard to it's it's hard to fault the other team for beating him, you know. So I mean, so at the end of the day, you, there's this there's this weird. Uh, void where like where our where our current villain is and Ron Borges by just dropping the ball on on this uh, on this piece had sort of became their local villain for a while. Yeah, I would say you know in addition to the kind of stuff you say about being an old school newspaper sports columnist, the kind of Olympian status of that person, you know, I'd also say that the fact this was anonymous sources. Um, which is all of our cocaine, right? Oh, but yeah. also something we're all ki- we're all kind of um, suspicious of. And you know, the fatal thing here, potentially fatal anyway for him, is that right? He said sources plural in his piece. And you know, I don't know if regular readers, I don't know how much you know people sort of how much that triggers your brain. But when I read sources, I generally assume a story is true because. You know, I assume that the person has gotten multiple people on this, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, what it seems like is that he got this from one person who, of course, turned out to be fake. And again, and if it had been real Don Yee instead of fake Don Yee, that would have been a great source, right? Because other than Tom Brady, who actually knows the answer to this question, <laughs> whether Brady's going to hold out. But I just think every time there's like a, a car crash like this, you know, we just, you sort of look at anonymous sources and be like, what if, what if a lot of this stuff is not real? You know, what if a lot, or what if a lot of this stuff is agenda driven? And by the way, it certainly, it almost certainly is. And, you know, I think that kind of perks up people's ears too. Yeah, no, I think that, I think that you're really onto something because that if that were really Don Yee te- texting Ron Borges, even then it, what it, it exposes something significant, which is how the sausage is made, right? I mean, it, even if it were true, what we're left with is, a player's agent directly texting us, you know, a sports columnist and saying, please help us start our campaign to get Tom Brady more money. We don't want to just deal with it. We, you know, we want to start a public outcry before we have to go and have this conversation with the Patriots. Mm-hmm. It exposes more than just the uh, the fallibility of, of, of one sports columnist. That's for sure. And also the levels of insiderdom, right? Because in these texts, we see the references to Peter King and Adam Schefter, right? Uh, right. And you're the local guy, and I sure would like to get this one rather than give it to those national guys. You know, that whole just sort of, I think, uh, Barstool Big Cat, who weirdly got involved in this with Ed, Ed Werger on Twitter, one of the <laughs> one of the weird, talk about weirder journalistic feuds of our time, talked about that, you know, living in fear that Peter King is going to come you know, take your, take your lunch away, right. Is going to come and steal the scoop if you don't use it. And that's, and I think that know, the real missing element of the, of the big cat versus Ed Werder feud is that Werder has been staking out this mustached sports writer corner for so long. <laughs> <laughs> so Nick and Boston appeared on the WEI morning show with Minahan and Callahan later on WEI, the same station. Should we talk about Former Pats tight end Christian Faria's reaction to the news. <laughs> yes, let's do it. Let's go for it. Um, he decided to do kind of a dramatic performance of the Donny tweets in a an extremely racist mock Asian accent. Am I? Is that is that is that a fair description of what happened? I think so. Yeah. <laughs> Adding a bizarre racist second act to this thing that didn't really need one. <laughs> I don't know what, to, I don't know what to say about it more than that. I mean that he got suspended for it is significant because 
I mean, you you would like to think that this would be a suspendable or fireable offense at just at you know at any place of business, but I I don't think but you know Boston Sports Radio has acquitted itself of of uh, you know of such things in the past so well. Um, and and you know someone at our workplace raised the question of whether or not there would have been any suspension at all if it weren't Don Yee, you know, someone of that if it weren't Tom Brady's manager that were being lampooned. Uh, lampooned isn't even the right word. I mean, <laughs> that were being targeted. Um, in this yep. like ridiculous voice, I think that in some ways it just feels like the fitting in cap to this insane story if it weren't so offensive, you know, but just that something this wacky is, I mean, just this bizarre is what spins out of this already bizarre story. I, I, don't, I don't, I don't even know what to make of it, but this is the world that we live in right now. One more thing about anonymous sources too, by the way, is that I think the answer with anonymous sources, there's plenty, there are plenty of legit stories that come via anonymous sources, obviously, including, yeah. you know, tons of insider stuff. The thing about it is the only way to police them is this story reveals like most people aren't going to be pranked. I think, you know, I mean, I don't think that's going to be a recurring problem in sports journalism to any important degree. But what this exposes is that the only way to police anonymous sources is for the insiders to do it themselves. Right. Mm -hmm. You have to be the one to decide, is this story real or is this just some, you know, bloody meat being thrown out uh, for some other purpose? You have to, of course, in this sense, um, decide, is this person real? And nobody else is going to check that. And readers don't and readers and and press critics and whomever else can't go back and check your work. Right. Because it's anonymous. So the only the only people and this is. This is the conundrum of anonymous sources. And in this case, it shows it because it's just like, this is the only way there's no way to check this. There's no way to run with this. And when you spectacularly get it wrong, I think it just sort of points out that dilemma. I mean, you can think of it separately from the ethics and journalism point of view, which is like, I was just thinking like, if you, yeah, I know (laughs) everybody, everyone just turned off the podcast. But if you would, if you had texted me that, you know, over the weekend and said, Hey David, I got a new phone number, but here's what I want to talk about on the press box this week. I can't imagine I would have gone to the trouble of like texting your old number and just being like, hey, are you actually texting me right now? Now, I, I might have figured out some <laughs> other way or I might have, you know, I might have dropped you an email and tested the, you know, I, I guess if I were really skeptical, that wouldn't be crazy. But yeah, you're right. When you're when it comes to if you ever find your place yourself in a place uh, as, a, as a writer, as a journalist, where your word is as good as bond when it comes to vetting sources, then um that's incumbent upon, I mean, then, yeah, I mean, if, if you get, if you screw up like this and you lose your job, you brought it on yourself. I mean, that's not a, that's, I, I'm the, I'm usually the last one ever to call for anyone's job in any sort of, you know, media controversy, but you know, you've put yourself in that position, you know, I mean, if it, it's either, either, I mean, somebody, somebody really dropped the ball. If, you know, it's either the writer or the editor and, or, or, you know, the process, it really sucks for, for the glorious field of journalism because, you're right. I mean, it's incumbent upon the writer and there's there's no, you know, real other alternative. One last note before we run on this topic. Bill Simmons, our boss, tweeted uh, about the Boston Sports Media this week. And I wanted to venture a semi-unified theory of Boston Sports Media that I think kind of folds into this. Bill tweeted, you know, that he grew up reading Ray Fitzgerald and Peter Gammons and, and Bob Ryan and, and those guys from the 70s and 80s. And as he put on Twitter, they elevated sports fandom and had an incalculable impact on what I wanted to do for a career. I, you know, it's funny because the Boston writers, largely speaking, not all of them, but a lot of them from that era were known from the outside, from Philly and New York as being kind of homerish. Right. Mm -hmm. I think the proper, I think that's probably an inexact term. It's probably more like they were, especially in the case of like people like Pop Ryan and, and Gammons were fans, fans of the teams they had covered. Right. And that made them distinct where, Philadelphia and New York were really guns and knives and you kind of earned your spurs by beating up on the teams you covered. Um, it was a little different in, in Boston generally, again, generally speaking, I think Boston sports media is still driven by that same sports fan impulse. I just think it's manifesting itself totally differently, right? There's, there's fandom. Whereas as Ryan once told me, you're writing about the Celtics from a pro Celtics point of view. There's also fandom where you kind of turn it into an us versus them kind of thing, right? Yes. Who can, nobody gets to pick on Tom Brady. Nobody gets to pick on the Pats. The, the, the flake gate guys are not only wrong, they're liars and they have an agenda and they're trying to bring us down. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So 
I wonder if I almost see the same impulse, the same kind of, you know, thing driving it all, but it's just for whatever reason, because of Twitter, because of sports radio, because of deflate gate, you could list 5,000 reasons. It's just, it's just sort of coming out in a totally different way. Does that make sense? Yeah, man, that totally makes sense. David, now it's time for our overworked Twitter joke of the week where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. This week's runner up comes from listener Gary Isabel Jr. We mentioned Jimmy Garoppolo's new $137 million contract. <laughs> David, if you reacted to that by saying with that, he can afford a two bedroom apartment in San Francisco. <laughs> you were a runner up this week. One side note, by the way, you know, the Twitter account freezing cold takes. Oh yeah, of course. Makes fun yeah. of, like bad predictions. The guy who, who runs it, noted that overworked joke, but called it the frequently used joke of the day, which to me really sounds like store brand overused Twitter joke of the week. Am I, am I being a little sensitive? It's kind of like buying the Safeway ketchup instead of Heinz, you know? Oh my anyway, gosh. overused, please, by the way, a public term, Every, everybody uh, feel free to use it. Uh, second runner up this week is when Josh McDaniels quit the Colts head coaching job, speaking of the Patriots, before he started, if you rendered that decision on a napkin... The same way Bill Belichick quit the Jets back in 1999. Congratulations. You were also a winner. <laughs> but this week's runaway champ is the variety of jokes made about the Cavs trading away all their players. JW sent this one in saying, next Cavs practice, quote, okay, so when we go around the room, say your name and one interesting thing about yourself. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of funny. <laughs> but I think our grand prize this week goes to Anyone on Twitter who announced that you had been traded to or by the Cavaliers, right? Because <laughs> it was a joke that not only consumed media Twitter, but actually brand Twitter, too, with contributions from the Jacksonville Jaguars and Whataburger, I saw, among <laughs> others that kind of got into that. And then weirdly, like days later, Conan O'Brien comes off the top rope and says, I don't know how this happened, but apparently I was just traded to the Cavaliers. <laughs> just a bit. To me, it's like the archetypal overworked Twitter joke is when Conan or one of his writers suddenly feels like, hey, I need to get in on this. Oh, that's so great. All right, Dave, before we talk about the critical response to Black Panther, let's take a quick break. A business is only as strong as its people and every hire matters. So don't settle for posting and hoping the right person will find your role and apply. Instead, choose LinkedIn. LinkedIn is more than the world's largest professional network. It's also a better way to find great talent. Think about it. How often do you check job boards? For most people, it's a pretty occasional thing. But there is a place where people go daily to grow professionally, LinkedIn. 70% of the U.S. workforce is already on LinkedIn, and 22 million professionals view and apply to jobs on LinkedIn every week in every industry. Just ask any of the hundreds of thousands of businesses who have posted to LinkedIn jobs over the past year. They rate LinkedIn jobs 40% higher than job boards at delivering quality candidates. Because LinkedIn considers skills, experiences, location, and more to match and promote your job to potential candidates. If you're not using LinkedIn for your hiring needs, you're missing out. Go to LinkedIn.com slash PressBox and get a $50 credit toward your first job post. That's LinkedIn.com slash PressBox for your $50 credit today. Terms and conditions apply. my entire life for this the world's gonna start over i'm gonna burn it all the revolution will be live all right david our second segment we call panther pride reference to our old high school by the way for anyone that doesn't think that's very funny one of the best reviewed movies in recent memory is coming out this week and that's making some people angry to wit, Marvel's Black Panther got rapturous reviews from its early critic screenings. Then there were a few critical holdouts, which made the Marvel fans mad. And then sadly familiar, if you remember the all-female Ghostbusters, there was a backlash from people who want to hate Black Panther because they liked the DC Universe better, or they have quote-unquote economic anxiety, or possibly both. David, what were your takeaways about the state of movie reviewing circa 2018 as viewed through this prism? Oh, man, I almost feel like we need a timeline to go through this one. Okay, the first item, sequentially, is the, I don't know if I'll say tidal wave, but the, uh, you know, the the semi-serious rainstorm of very early reviews for Black Panther. 
Um, I like that meteorological distinction you made. Yeah. There. Thank you. You know, I mean, uh, talk about anxiety. I mean, when I I working at a site that has and will continue to cover this movie, I'm sure you know pretty heavily. Every time I like look up and or look at my Twitter feed and see that there's a major newspaper releasing their review of Black Panther or even a minor blog releasing their review of Black Panther, I get I've, for the past week I've been scared almost every day into thinking that I'm a week behind at my job. <laughs> Uh, so yes. and I, and I and know the movie that, has not actually been released. I, I know it's not it's not coming out until Friday, well Thursday night or whatever. I'll I'll, I'll be there with bells on. But uh, it's just I you know I understand it's for SEO or I mean or whatever. It's for gimmicking the the Google search so that when someone searches for Black Panther reviews, yours has been up there you know uh, accumulating clicks for days. Uh, and also it's out there to you know beat the rest of the reviews you know just to the punch, just to get your opinion out there and to get some attention. But I'm not sure what real service it does for all of these reviews to sort of be coming out way ahead of time. I mean, you can I guess you can argue against that, that just having more time to form an opinion or whatever is fine. But what's really happened, though, is that in the is that all these reviews are coming out without the audience having a chance to confirm the reviews or to form their own opinions one way or the other. And so the story is not the, the story is no longer about the movie Black Panther. Um because certainly there's very few reviewers with the esteem of, you know, you mentioned Pauline Kael earlier or Roger Ebert or any of these people that like kind of could really set, in a, you know, set somebody's weekend agenda by the way they would review movies. Uh, the, and the storyline ceases to become about the Black Panther or become about watching the movie. It, it starts to become about what, what the motives of the writers for, for praising it or then subsequently for not fully, not full throatedly praising it. Um, mm hmm. You know, we're in a, we're in a really interesting time where there's a lot more autonomy of the of the audience right now, um, and that's a good thing overall. Um, I certainly care. I certainly am much more interested in reading um, Star Wars Reddit than reading the reviews of The Force Awakens or The Last Jedi. Um, yes. And uh, so I, overall, I think that's a good thing. The problem is that when that autonomy is, exi- is, is, is existing in a vacuum, um, then, the, then the narrative becomes something totally different than this movie is good or this movie is bad or here's, you know, a hundred really interesting Easter eggs I discovered while watching it for the fifth time. Yeah, I would say if we're going to parse critics, uh, you know, motivations, we should go back even before the reviews to the, tw- the Insta tweet that comes out of the screening. Because, you know, to me, those are less about telling people if the movie was good than telling people, hey, I was at the screening. Like, right. That's the purpose of that tweet. Yeah. Sort of like the movie critics version of the picture of the empty field you take from the press box before a football game. Right. Like, I'm here. I was there. I saw Mm -hmm. the movie. You know, I think he was your uh, your partner, Dave Schilling, pointed out like that's there's something totally untrustworthy about those reviews because to win Twitter with that. Right. It's you're not going to win it by saying, you know, Black Panther is somewhere between Ant-Man and the first Captain America on the Marvel movie scale, right? It's It has to be the best Marvel movie ever or yeah. the worst. You know, I mean, there's no... So I, I just think that's a just a bizarre thing. Yeah, I mean, but I totally agree with the... I don't quite... I mean, I'm, I'm happy to read reviews a week or four days early for a movie, but <laughs> it's pretty clear that that's just about SEO rather than providing some service. It's funny because we, we talked a little bit about movie critics on this podcast. That, like... 800 to a thousand words, mostly spoiler free review, which I think you get on the front end is like the oldest journalistic form imaginable. Yeah. And yet that's still the, as you say, before we get to the Easter egg count and, and all the Mary Sue stuff and all the, whatever it is, like that is just still the way that is the way first impressions of movies are made again, largely from critics who are out of the demographic. It's just a, that's just a fascinating thing to me. There's nothing wrong with it, but it's, um, it's really, it's really strange to the, in terms of the motives. So I think Black Panther was running at a hundred percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah. We should, we we should stipulate the, I mean, I'm sure most people know this, but it's easy to get lost. It's easy to get, get this confused when you're, when you're just, you know, reading a head, a meta headline about Rotten Tomatoes, they are rate, they're, they're determining that every review is either quote fresh or quote rotten, right? 
Um, right. Thumbs up or thumbs down. Right. And they and 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 the and the, the line between the two is a little bit arbitrary. I mean, the first negative review that Black Panther got gave it three out of five stars, which is not exactly a pan, you know, but um, <laughs> but but well, it's, the review itself. This is from Ed Power of the Irish Independent. Yeah, I read it and, and he had kind of one one or two nitpicks in the final paragraph, which seemed totally reasonable. I haven't seen the movie, obviously, but um, it, it seemed like a it seemed like a, a rave to me. Or at least like a mostly positive review to that point. Well, I saw a lot of people online quoting it out of context and then like commenters were complaining because his his one of the points that he makes, I believe, earlier in the piece was that the weight of the Trump administration, and this is again an Irish writer, the weight of the 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 expectations of this movie coming out in a particularly kind of racially divided moment in America's history made the movie sort of a drag. It wasn't just the spectacle of of you know backflips and and laser beams that it that it could have been uh, if released during you know in a, in a different year, but it, you know it, he wasn't saying that the movie was overly dependent on politics. It seemed to me that he was saying that you could feel the pressure. You know the the movie the, the yes. movie exhibited that it was coming. You know exhibited that it could feel the pressure. Yeah, he said it was too. He said that Chadwick Boseman's performance—it was like it was like he was feeling the weight of it and was almost a little too restrained. Yeah, um, which I thought was again, having not seen the movie, but it seemed like a totally reasonable point. Well, I actually read the other two negative reviews, which were—I <laughs> don't know—less um, less earnest, perhaps. Vicky uh-huh. Roach of the Daily Telegraph here in Australia. By the way, the other two came from Australia. Interestingly, called it an earnest ethnical cargo cult of a movie. I'm not actually really sure what that means, but I can't imagine it's a good thing. And somebody from a website called Urban Cinephile, which advertises itself as the world of film in Australia on the internet. Thankfully, we're not, thank you for clarifying they were reading this on the internet, not like on a movie screen or something like that. Um, she used the phrase, hell hath no fury as a crazed African, which I think is probably not something that would be printed in a polite newspaper. But anyway, those are the those are the only three negative reviews on there right now. Negative, quote unquote, as you say. Uh, there's a lot of parallels I wasn't aware of between uh, Australian film criticism and Boston sports radio. This is really great. Um, the, <laughs> all and those reviews, I mean, all those three negative reviews taken as a whole, I'm sure will come as music to the ears of anyone who is who is uh, inherently skeptical of you know the bias of American media vis-a-vis the rest of the world or something. <laughs> um, but. You know, I do think that there is, I mean, everything that I've heard from people who've seen this movie is that it's fantastic um, and that it's certainly more uh, thoughtful and deep than uh, its predecessors in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, and I don't and and I, I do think it's, you know, it's worth stipulating that this is, you know, you, you said it. All you know, you 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 if you if you come back if you're a reviewer, you come back from this from the movie and you say you know you tell your editor like yeah it was really good. Um, your editor's going to ask, well, how was it good? How was it different? How you know what set it apart? Uh, is it the best movie ever? What's the most exclamatory headline we can put on this thing? Um, and right. and listen, I mean this this may be the most different and most amazing movie uh, that the Marvel Cinematic that superhero movies have ever produced, right? Um, and I love these movies. I'm the biggest comic book nerd you're going to find. And the fact that they figured out a way to do them well has been one of the happiest things that's happened in my lifetime. Um, but it has to be said that like as long, I mean, I could, I could talk for hours about how cool, I mean, how like the cool differences that Marvel's made in their movies, the way they've differentiated them by like making them suddenly one genre or another, but they are very similar movies compared to the, the wide world of moviedom. You know, I mean, there, there's a, yep. there's a lot of, at time, especially in the the team up movies, there's a lot of sort of mind numbing sameness or obviousness that happens. And to differentiate any of them, I mean, I think there's a there's a degree to which even subconsciously reviewers are looking for a way to be effusive about these movies in an era where these are the movies that you're that are it's most important for you to cover. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think we, uh, yeah, and I think you and I have touched on that before. Like, if you're locked into the Marvel Universe as a critic, you're like, this is going to take up, you know, 10% of my life, comic book movies, which is probably, I don't think that's an overstatement, right? Maybe more. Sure. If I'm a professional film reviewer, yeah, then I'm going to start looking for the masterpieces of this genre because what else am I going to do? You know, even if I don't, if I'm not given to like movies like this, like, 
it's kind of like critical Stockholm syndrome, right? Like I just, and I'm, by the way, it's a lot of these movies are quite good, but I'm just saying like, that's, that's totally right. You're going to start looking for masterpieces. I, I think that's, I think that's totally right. I'm, you know, it's funny. Cause I'm like, obviously a lot of the, you know, we're going to, we're going to see, I, I think the, when you talk about like people who have an investment in this movie, um, you know, and for various reasons that, that will probably start once, once more, you know, at least on Twitter and stuff, once the movie actually comes out, but you know, taking that, putting that aside for a moment, whenever I see something that is a hundred percent fresh in this case, Mm -hmm. the contrarian in me does want to read the negative review just to see like, what is the best case against this movie? (laughs) I mean, or by the way, the positive review for Suburbicon, if there was one out in the world, you know, like who, who, what was, what was the case for this movie? And, and I don't think there's, you know, now we're seeing some people on Twitter being like, it's, it's really good. I wouldn't say it's, fantastic it's it's merely really good and that's you know good enough or whatever and i just think the shades of you know there are shades of criticism and stuff like that and you know i'm i guess i'm not against the kind of fresh rotten thing it to me it feels like a rerun you mentioned roger ebert of all the critics who were so mad at siskel and ebert for doing thumbs up or thumbs down saying it ruined you know movie criticism or it you know it took a complicated thing and reduced it to up or down i'm like but isn't how isn't that what people want right don't people just at some level want to know whether they should go see the movie or not you know i just i, I don't know that to me is like a and if it's you know if i look at the thing and it says 53 percent fresh or 75 percent or 93 percent or whatever i think that's sort of valuable yeah i mean i think that the, i think that the the great i mean the proponents of black panther the, the reviewers who have seen it and and, and mostly praised it to this point um, you know, I mean, I, a lot of times it, I, I think that, I don't think that they're coming at this with an agenda. I mean, I certainly don't. I mean, not, not all of them anyway. I mean, and, and I think it's pretty, it's pretty clear. I think most people are pretty, you know, are pretty, uh, honest about it when they are, um, you know, there's nothing wrong with reviewing a movie from, from a particular point of view. These are, you know, that's what no. a, a lot of reviews are. Um, I think that, but I, but I do think that, you know, when you see the hundred percent, I mean, part of that's just a uh, is a fluke, you know. Um, part of it is is a you know a little bit of Stockholm syndrome, and part of it's that the, you know if this is a this is a you know beloved franchise, uh, an incredibly acclaimed and beloved director and and lead and two lead actors, um, really trying. I mean, you know wh- whether or not we're working in the margins of a very confined genre here. I mean, trying something with a almost entirely African American cast that's never been done before, right? And, um, and I think that, and I think that, you know, having, you know, getting some bonus points for that is, is, is expected and it's, and it's fine. Um, but I do think, you know, we come back around to the beginning, this is the, the, the fresh score only reflects that that percentage of reviews were positive, you know, I mean, we're, we're mostly positive and, you know, if you want to bell, if you want to bell curve out, even like the, even the pans, um, you know, it's, it doesn't rest there at number 10. It's going to be, it's, you know, it's probably sitting somewhere around like 8.2 or something like that. And the, and the, the negative reviews aren't that, you know, are not outliers, nor are the really positive ones. Um, so yeah, it's a little bit distracting, I think to the overall, I mean, it, to, to the overall, uh, PR push of the, of the film, maybe most distracting in all of this was the, the the reports that there were you know online trolls that were trying to that were planning on tanking the IMDb user score or, or viewer score, um, mm-hmm. which which I'm not quite sure if that if this troll army exists or if it was just um, you know we've seen it happen in the past and we're protect we you know and we've seen some inkling of it on Facebook and so we're protecting against it you know or if it was I mean the other end of the spectrum is just complete. Uh, you know, PR operation by 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 Disney to make it look like these people were coming out and try to get other people to the ballot box or whatever. I don't think that's what happened, but you can. <laughs> but I've definitely read those conspiracy <laughs> theories online. But that'd be funny. Ag- again, this is just distracting from <laughs> from whether or not. I mean, that, then it becomes this incredible meta argument about whether or not you know fan about fan opinions versus reviewer opinions and and. What's lost in the whole thing is like, you know, we have to wait another few days before we can even see this movie. And and I'm sort of exhausted by the whole thing by the time it comes out. That's what I feel. Just just totally exhausted. And I think it's to circle back to your earlier point. It's 
part of it is, you know, p- people being numbskulls, you know, or at least alleged numbskulls. If these infect are real people and not just some dude with a Facebook page saying, I am, I am, I am representing the fans of the DC universe. We're going to take this movie down. Um, but, but really it's what's exhausting, I think, is, is various publications trying to win every point of this, right? Trying right. to win the pre-release, try to win the think piece thing, because I'm really the only reason I even know about Ed Power of the Irish Independence Review, no offense, Ed, is because there were like mashable pieces about it, right? Yeah. And then there were pieces on Breitbart that were about the people getting mad at Ed Power. Mm-hmm. So it's this whole think piece economy. And then of course, when the movie comes out, as you said, that we're going to, everybody's going to hit all these other marks, you know, with these just things. And it's just, I don't know. I just, I'm, I'm, I'm already, I'm already, I'm just sort of like, I don't want to say I'm mad at the movie, but what happens is I guess not this one. Cause I'm pretty interested in seeing it, but like with other movies, I've been mad at them before they come out because, <laughs> because of the journalism around them, Yeah, you know, just kind of like exhausted and angry at them in a weird way. And, yeah, you know, that's pretty depressing. I mean, I think that I don't think that there's that. I mean, I think you 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 know you'll see people you'll see commenters online uh, that that you know fear the sort of liberal or social justice takeover of of you know the journalism world um, to and which is just inherently hilarious. But um, you know, the, the, there is this notion that like a movie like Black Panther built into it is a sort of is a sort of chilling effect for uh, amongst american reviewers that you can't be the first one out of the gate talking talking or saying it's not good um and and certainly i i don't think anybody would would you know change their would would force their their in-house reviewer to change their opinion based on political leanings or anything like that i guess i could sort of imagine not wanting to be the irish independent in this case you know <laughs> um knowing that and it see and and we could see it coming you know like you said this is this is a this is a complex at this point that like you're gonna the first negative review now becomes the story you know who knows i you know obviously i'm extrapolating but it's um it's it's a it's a kind of crazy it's a wild world we live in i did i really want to make it clear though that like i'm very excited about black panther i can't wait to see black oh yeah me too (laughs) Me too. It looks so great. It's going to take a lot more meta think pieces about the reviews to to sap my will to see Black Panther. It's going to we're going to have to go another four or five rounds for him before I actually check out. All right, David. With that, let's move on to our third topic. It was an overworked yet delightful Twitter joke last week to cast the NBA trade deadline in terms of winners and losers, but to restrict your winners and losers to dueling insiders Adrian Wojnarowski and Shams Charania. Here's some few examples for you. Shams choked today. Spotlight got too big. Woj showed his veteran savvy. Trade deadlines like the playoffs are just a different game. Another one uh, said, Woj out here dropping heat and Shams talking about some damn Malachi trades. Boy. And finally, Shams hasn't tweeted in a full hour and Woj is going nuts. We are seeing greatness. And that was with a gif of Michael Jordan shrugging his shoulders during the 92 (laughs) NBA Finals. David... What did you make of this latest round of this extraordinary, I think the word is for it, sports writerly feud? Wow. Um, it, I'm trying to think of what the of, of what the the best pop culture did. I mean, all these tweets have not led me to the best uh, the best pop culture um, parallel to this. I mean, this is sort of like this would have been like if like Creed had ended with Rocky beating him up. Um, but the but the, the the redemption of Woj that happened at the trade deadline was was such a good story. It was such a it's such a good narrative, and really more than anything, uh, it kept the this this Woj Shams feud alive. Um, right. It, you know, we I talked in the last segment about sort of the 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 power of the of the audience. Um, and certainly like th- we see this at the ringer in, in the NBA world constantly. I mean, memes about basketball players become big or mu- much bigger stories than the, than the gamers, you know, or much, or, or, or just the, even the literal narrative of the team's record and their, you know, their pursuit of the playoffs, um, you know, interesting squabbling or whatever, just stories about locker room fights and stuff that those are much bigger pieces. Um, and this Woj Shams thing is like is the greatest meta storyline of all because it's the it's a it's a potentially non-existent feud between two people who are covering the stories in a sort of meta way anyway. Well, I say I say feud jokingly, of course, because you know I don't I'm I'm 
don't know that they are really feuding in some, but they're definitely competing. And there's absolutely zero chance that the two men, you know, aren't extremely competitive about this. Right. I mean, they, they clearly want to win, win these points. I think, so my take on it is that NBA insiderdom and surely the NFL too, um, is uniquely designed for this kind of feud because there's a really a definite scoreboard, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we were joking earlier, like what, if you're, if you're, if you were feuding with another wrestling writer, what would be the scoreboard that you would choose, you know, or, or, or sports or media, you know, criticism or whatever. But when you have, you know, the NBA, all these little news nuggets around certain moments, right? Like the trade deadline, the off season, and then various ones that come out during the season, you can really, you can kind of see a one-to-one thing. This is not the most important news. Either of these guys will break, right? Cause these are, this is stuff that would have been announced anyway. This is not stuff that would have been unknown to us <laughs> readers, right? but I just think the fact that it has a scoreboard on it, and that makes it fun, right? Like anybody, anybody watching at home, as they used to say on baseball broadcasts, can can figure out who won this round. Yeah, I mean, I I, I use the the uh, the Rocky reference off the top of my head, but I think that that what makes the story the the meta story really intriguing is you're right. There's a scoreboard, but also it it hews to this to all to this sort of like you know hero's journey that we're all so familiar with, and it and it inherently paints. I mean, just the structure of this that like. Woj starts a vertical, he hires Shams, then he goes, then he he leaves for ESPN, leaving Shams behind. And whether or not that was his, whose decision that was, you know, that, that they'd be separated, then that Yahoo, the vertical continues to exist and starts sort of, Shams is like, you know, beating Woj at his own game. I mean, it really started um, right after he was hired and hired by ESPN. And I think that that a, that a bunch of the online... Uh, you know, gift making and and backslapping is uh is related to just you know ESPN hate or and and I don't and not in a necessarily a bad Definitely. way you know just the sort Definitely. of laughing at the big institution that's getting schooled by you know the Goliath that's getting schooled by David or whatever. Um, we saw that with we've seen that in the NFL with Jake Glazer right yeah. taking on Schefter and Mort and saying why didn't they credit me and all that stuff. Absolutely. Yeah, you see that kind of thing all the time, and we know we know that from when. Um, ESPN hired Woj. I mean, from the reporting that was done at the time, that there was that you know there were there were powerful people inside of ESPN that were just apoplectic that they were getting scooped by this Yahoo Twitter account all the time. You know, that they, <laughs> that's that, capital. That's capital Yahoo, by the way, not lowercase. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah exactly. And that they were and that they were you know forced to credit him repeatedly on their own crawl. Um, now there are people inside ESPN. There, there were people, and and probably still are people inside of ESPN who would tell you that the only reason that Woj was beating them, um, uh, beating the beating, you know, scooping them on such a regular basis, is that ESPN had this infrastructure that made it impossible to report at that speed, right? Um, right. And 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 you and I think that's basically where this entire story. Like th- that, that leads you to the origin of this rivalry that Woj goes to ESPN and suddenly he's and suddenly the shackles are on him and it makes and he's much slower um, at 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 breaking these stories. And Chom suddenly has the, the the opportunity to jump out ahead. I have no idea. And I don't think anyone's you know reported on this or that they'd be able to. But it really feels like that at the trade deadline this year um, that either Woj or who or, or someone way above him said it's crazy that we, you know, hired this guy for his Twitter scoops and we're not letting him scoop us. Let's just go back to the way he was doing things before. <laughs> yeah, I think I I like what you said about the the hero's journey, you know, not to get too Joseph Campbell on this whole thing, uh, which no one would ever do when talking about NBA trades, but just the kind of filial nature of the whole feud is the amazing part, right? Mm-hmm. You know, especially since Shams was seen to having been won the off season. I think that if I'm if I'm if I'm saying this right, and, that's correct. Yeah, you know, Woj comes back and reasserts himself. That was you know what the Twitter jokes were about this week, and won the trade deadline. That was you know, I mean, that's it's. I, I'm not sure that sports writing ever inherently provides great drama, <laughs> but that's that's pretty fun. That's pretty cool. Speaking of drama, I mean, in the way that we consume media you and i consume media definitely i mean more so than almost anybody else but really just the way the average sports fan consumes media now 
sports writers are a huge part of the way we consume and the way that we interact and and not just I read this columnist um but like you know the way that I mean memes about getting scooped or you know the the way that the way the sausage is made all this stuff is is part of the way that we consume it you know you immediately you read an article and you immediately want to see what your other sport what other sports writers are saying about it on Twitter the problem with a lot of that is that most most writers in general and present company is not excluded here are really boring. You know, I mean, there's not there's not a lot of it's, it's been a long time since I've seen two journalists go around back and like have a fight over some story that was written, you know, Super Bowl press row notwithstanding. And the the fact that you're that that something so perfect, that so just like something out of like mythology, you know, that, that this feud has just been born and it's like a gift to us that, that something, I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing to watch these two people race to get the first tweet out. And again, and we're talking a lot about these, a lot of, a lot of these tweets were separated by one minute, you know I mean? Or, or then that's mm-hmm. Twitter timestamping. Um, it, it's amazing that like a margin of error is making such a big difference in the way that we consume news. And the best part about it is everybody's watching both of these Twitter feeds to see who gets there first. You know, I mean, the story is the competition and it's somehow it's actually lapped uh, the intrigue of almost anything that happened at the trade deadline. You know, I mean, listen, the Cavs put up a, bi- a big fight for storyline of the day, but this is this is the <laughs> ongoing the ongoing feud that we care about most is is you know two sports writers like seeing who's got the more nimble thumbs on their iPhone. Well, I've worked this point a couple of times, but I, I've said before I think that you know inside it's it's a weird sort of side effect or or thing about our era of journalism that the insiders have become these heroic figures, right? Nikki Fink in um in Hollywood writing and Woj in, in basketball and this like they're that they're you know they're doing their job for us, right? They're rooting out news. They're you know, they're this they're this kind of you know, there's this kind of, you know, guy who's who's getting some answers and, and getting news that the teams don't want you to know and all that stuff, whether that's always true or not. And so, yeah, when they go one-on-one, I think that's it. By the way, I want to um, spend a segment next week coming up with the script for uh, Creed if Rocky had beaten up Creed at the end of the movie. That's just <laughs> fascinating to me. I just I want you to do the Jim, Ro- Jim Ross narration. My God, no, no. This wasn't what? supposed to happen, damn it. Yeah. I mean, well, the alternative would be like it's Star Wars if if, you know, Darth and Luke were co-workers, but Darth got hired on to the Empire. I can't quite make sense of this storyline either. <laughs> I was like, whoa. The point, the I, point I, is, heard, whoa, the point is Woge isn't Darth Vader, and I don't want to say that he is. All right. I mean, he's a, he's a wonderful reporter. Um but it's a, it's a it's an incredibly it's a, it's an incredibly compelling story, you know? I mean, it's really it's hard it's hard to say that it's not. And Anything that can be distilled so succinctly down into gifts of people dunking on other people with the heads replaced. I mean, that is the Joseph Campbell mythology of the modern era. And I don't think that uh, that, that those gifts get enough credit. All right. With David assuring everyone that Woj is not, in fact, Darth Vader. We'll, we'll, we'll conclude with that. <laughs> Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker of The Ringer. More hot takes about the media next week. See you later, David. See you later, man. You know how they should settle the Woj versus Shams since it's tied 1-1? Whoever gets the scoop on the gender of uh, Tristan Thompson and Khloe Kardashian's kid, that would be the tiebreaker. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Right there. That would be the tiebreaker. Because not only are they competing with each other, but TMZ and exactly. like OK oh. and all that stuff, right? I like the idea, though, of calling the shot for them. I love it. <laughs>